In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Perhaps we could begin this period of prayer by meditating on some words of Monsignor Fernando O'Cardith, the prelate of the work, uh, which he wrote back in 2019 in a letter on friendship. Friendship is a very rich human reality, a form of reciprocal love between two persons that is built on mutual knowledge and communication. It is a form of love that is directed in two directions and that seeks the true good of the other person, a love that produces union and happiness. Hence, sacred scripture says that there is nothing so precious as a faithful friend and no scales can measure his excellence. That's a quote from the book of Sirach at the end. When we enter into dialogue with you, Lord Jesus, as we're trying to do now with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole soul in our prayer, we realize that conversation with you is friendship. Our relationship with you is, is one of friendship. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. That's how you have addressed yourself to us, Lord. You're not a vague, distant deity. You are the great friend. No greater love can any man have than to lay down his life for his friends. As we contemplate you on the cross, Lord, we realize that you are indeed the friend par excellence. The friend, the one friend who never lets us down. And in that sense, we could say that prayer is easy because it's simply the natural dialogue, the natural communication between two friends who get on very well, who love one another. Friendship here, as described by the prelate of Opus Dei, he says it's built on mutual knowledge and communication. It's a form of love directed in two directions and that seeks the true good of the other person, a love that produces union and happiness. Well, Lord, when I pray about friendship, the first friendship that comes to mind is your friendship. And when I pray, I'm already engaging in friendship. Because ultimately, the Christian life is not a theory, not a series of ideas, but rather a relationship, which uh, is one of friendship and of profound love with you, Jesus, which endures throughout this life and into eternity. So it's always good for us, isn't it? It's always helpful for us to pray about our Lord as the friend, friendship with Christ. We could probably spend a lot of time just meditating on friendship, friendship with Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas says, Jesus Christ is our best and our wisest friend. Yes, Lord, you are our best friend because... No one loves us more 
or better or more deeply. No one else loves us with an eternal, undying love. You, Lord Jesus, are always full of compassion, of affection, of enthusiasm for each one of us. And your love for us is not conditional on how we behave or what we do. Your love for us is unconditional. Yes, we try to behave well. We try to reciprocate that love. We try to live a holy life with your grace. But your love is unconditional. You love us not because of what we do, but because of who we are. You are our best, says St. Thomas, our best and our wisest friend. We all do well to have a wise friend, someone who gives us good counsel. You, Lord, you always give us the best counsel, because in fact, you know us and love us better than anyone else. Only Christ knows what is in man. That great theme of scripture that St. John Paul II often repeated, only Christ knows what is in man. Christ reveals man to man. St. Teresa of Avila says, If Christ Jesus dwells in a person as his friend and noble guide, that person can endure all things. For Christ helps and strengthens us and never abandons us. He is a true friend. Again, a great saint, a great contemplative who's seeing you, Jesus, as the true and the great friend. And in these words of Teresa of Avila, we can often find consolation and support. A man or a woman can bear all things if Christ Jesus dwells in him or her as his friend and noble leader, our noble guide, we might say. We can endure all things for Christ helps and strengthens us and never abandons us. He is a true friend. Jesus, help me to go a bit deeper into the reality of your friendship, what it means. But here, the words of Teresa of Avila emphasize just the stability, I guess, of our Lord's friendship. Whatever is going on on the surface of our lives, the ups and downs of our existence, maybe moments of crisis or of darkness or of bleakness, other moments of great joy or of tranquil sort of stability, whatever it is, the rock on which we're based is the friendship our Lord has for us, that personal love, which is our faith which is the substance of our lives as Christians. And then St. Josemaria, in the chapter Love of God in the Way, he writes, Jesus is your friend, the friend, with a human heart like yours, with loving eyes that wept for Lazarus, and he loves you as much as he loved Lazarus. Again, that's a point that, Lord, I could me meditate on for a long time, your loving eyes that wept for Lazarus. The translation of the text of St. John about um, Jesus going to Bethany to raise Lazarus says that Jesus broke into silent tears. Jesus wept silently. How good it is for us to meditate on the sacred humanity of our Lord who, who really has a heart, who really has emotions, who really cares, who really suffers out of compassion for his friends. We can ask the Holy Spirit as we pray to help us to, to have a deeper awareness of the friendship of Christ with each one of us. A friendship that's intimate, that's personal. And therefore we can call out to you, Lord, at any time with tremendous confidence, knowing that you know us and love us perfectly. That, as St. Josemaria would say, 
you call us by our pet name or by our nickname. That name that really no one knows perhaps except our own mother. That's how Jesus deals with us. Going back to the um, the words of the prelate, friendship is built on mutual knowledge and communication. It is a form of love that is directed in two directions and seeks the true good of the other person, a love that produces union and happiness. Well, we think now of our own friends on earth, especially our family members. And in my prayer, Lord, I want to entrust to you my closest friends, which very often will be my parents or my siblings, my brothers and sisters in my family. And they're our friends. They all have their own needs, their own joys, their own challenges. And I guess the first sign of friendship is always prayer, isn't it? We pray for the people we love, and indeed we love the people we pray for. The more we pray for a person, the more we tend to love that person and understand them, and the more deeply we appreciate them. And the more we love a person, and the more deeply we appreciate them, the more we tend to intercede for them, to pray for them. So friendship has an awful lot to do with prayer. And these characteristics of friendship that the prelate, the father, talks about, knowledge, communication, and self-giving love, desiring the good of the other, well, that's uh, key to our lives. You know, our personal friends in our workplace, we pray for them. In our sports club, we pray for them. We love them for who they are. And we grow in love with them through, through mutual knowledge, through dealing with them. When we pray about friendship, especially, I guess, in the context of the month of November, naturally, we're also praying about the church. Because the church is the great mystery, the great communion of friends. It's friendship with Christ and with one another. You might remember that beautiful description of the church in the Second Vatican Council, that the church is like a sacrament, veluti sacramentum. It's a bit like a sacrament. It's like the sacrament of the communion between God and people and of the communion between people among themselves. So it's like a two-way friendship, the church, a two-way communion. It's like a sacrament, it says. It's not a sacrament in the sense of one of the seven sacraments, but it's a sacrament in that it makes present the reality of this love, of this connection between God and man and of men among themselves, men and women among themselves. That's what the church is. So essentially the church is a reality of, of friendship, of love. And in the month of November, of course, we're, we're very conscious of this, that the church is a living family, a living communion of love. We begin, of course, on the 1st of November with the Feast of All Saints. And then on the 6th of November is the Feast of All the Saints of Ireland, although this year it was superseded liturgically because it was a Sunday, but nonetheless... Um, the saints in heaven they're our great friends they're always interceding for us they love us they want us to make it home as you're doing your prayer now and as I'm trying to do my prayer now perhaps we bring to mind our, our favourite saints the people who uh, inspire us maybe they are canonised maybe, they, maybe they'll never be canonised uh, maybe 
They're the great saints, St. Joseph or St. Michael the Archangel or maybe St. Patrick or St. Bridget, saints of our own country, or maybe St. Josemaria or Blessed Alvaro or Blessed Guadalupe or Tithalandathari, the saints of the work, the saints of the family of Opus Dei within the greater family of the church. Or even we could think of the saints of today, the day I'm happening to be uh, doing this period of prayer myself on uh, Tuesday, the 8th of November. And the saints today, very interesting to see, who do we celebrate today? We celebrate all the saints of Wales. Uh, There are hundreds of Welsh saints, many recognised by the church across the ages, and then many known only to God. In fact, many Welsh saints date from the so-called Age of the Saints in the 5th and 6th centuries. And they often have connections with Christian communities in Cornwall, Ireland, Scotland and Brittany. So today we celebrate the Feast of All the Saints of, of Wales. It's also another saint who maybe is not that well known but is very admirable. The Feast of Blessed George Napier who was put to death in 1610, born at Hollywell Manor in Oxford and studied at Corpus Christi College in Oxford, a learned man, therefore. Um, at that time, of course, it was impossible to um, to be educated for the priesthood in England, so he went to Douai in France, where he was ordained a priest in 1596, returning to England secretly in 1603 and working as a priest in Oxfordshire. He was arrested in Kirtlington on the 19th of July, 1610, after he brought the sacraments to a sick Catholic woman and condemned to death at the Oxford Assizes. He seems to have quite a personality, this saint, uh, quite admirable, because while he was imprisoned in Oxford Castle, he reconciled a condemned criminal to the church and prepared him for Christian death. And this was reported to the judges, who were very angry, and brought forward the date of George Napier's own execution, lest he should influence other prisoners in the same way. And when George was told this, he, uh, he said that he'd be quite willing to do the same for the judges if they required it. For, quote, he came into the country, he came into the county to execute his functions and to save people's souls. George Napier, blessed George Napier, was hanged, drawn and quartered at Oxford on the 8th of November 1610. And he was beatified by Pope Pius XI in 1929. Maybe you've never heard of that saint before. Well, I hadn't either until I looked up what saints the church celebrates today. And what a wonderful thing to know that these are our friends, maybe lost in the obscurities of history, like many of the, the saints of Wales whom we celebrate today, or, or maybe just a footnote maybe in history, because not many people maybe know about Blessed George Napier, but what a, what a great person. Today is also the feast of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who lived from 1880 to 1906, and was canonised very recently in 2016. Born in Cher, France, she was a discalced Carmelite in the monastery of Dijon, um, and her great devotion was to the Blessed Trinity. She's quite an important saint, really, and probably is increasingly becoming known as somebody who very much had the spirit of Saint Therese of Lisieux. She had a tough old time, uh, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity. She suffered quite a bit from just bleakness and darkness in her spiritual life and also from physical illness, which is what ended her life, you know, at the young age of 26. All these saints, you know, they're not just characters that we might look on from a distance. 
And that's just today's saints, today's liturgical saints. But every day there are so many saints. They're all wonderful people. They're all rich personalities. We might say they're all... The saints are all um, God's masterpieces, really. It's where the Holy Spirit has had free reign to form Christ in them. Like the letter to the Hebrews says, you know, very encouraging words at the end of that letter um, to persecuted Christians at the time, the sacred writer says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And we too, you know, we're also surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. We're not alone. I remember a few years ago, um, a priest just shared a story that he had uh, had. He had um, once had occasion to ask St. John Paul II, Holy Father, why is it that you're beatifying and canonizing so many saints? Because it is true that St. John Paul II beatified and canonized many, many saints. I don't know the exact statistic, but he may have even raised more people to the altars than all his predecessors. There were very, very many uh, beatifications and canonizations, many people. So this priest was curious, you know, and in a very informal setting, he had the opportunity of just asking the Holy Father, why, why are you beatifying and canonizing so many people? And he said that John Paul II smiled and he said, well, there's two reasons. Firstly, because the Second Vatican Council uh, above all emphasizes that everyone's called to holiness, what we call the universal call to holiness, everyone's called to holiness. That's one reason. So we need many models, we need many people, many examples from all walks of life to encourage people to, to seek holiness. And then the Holy Father added, also, doesn't it make you very happy to think that when you're dying, there'll be many saints in heaven praying for you? Which is an interesting angle, isn't it? When we're dying, there'll be many saints in heaven praying for us. And indeed, not just when we're dying, when we're living. Right now, we're surrounded by their friendship, by their love. Of course, in the month of November, we pray above all for the church suffering, for the church of God in purgatory. And again, it's good to dwell on how close we are to the dead. Also, those sisters and brothers of ours who might be going through that final purification of the elect. Um, there's a lovely line in uh, the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium, uh, where it teaches on the last things, on eschatology. And the council says the following. And these words are worth drinking in slowly. All who belong to Christ, having his spirit, form one church and cleave together in him. Therefore, the union of the wayfarers with the brothers and sisters who have gone to sleep in the peace of Christ is not in the least interrupted. On the contrary, according to the perennial faith of the church, it is strengthened through the exchanging of spiritual goods. It's the latter part of that, that teaching there that's very striking, that the relationship between the wayfarers, those of us who are still on our journey on earth, and our brothers and sisters who have gone before us uh, in, into the next world, that, as, as the Council says, isn't, this relationship is not in the least interrupted. On the contrary, according to the perennial faith of the Church, it is strengthened 
through the exchanging of spiritual goods. So let's think now about the holy souls in purgatory. Sometimes we call them the dormant church, those who sleep in the peace of Christ. And we sometimes call them the suffering church. Because it is a great mystery. Purgatory is a mystery of love, of purification. And it's a purification that does bring suffering, while at the same time being an experience of tremendous joy. This is not the easiest thing for us to understand. How can great suffering and great joy coexist? And yet, our, our experience of love, even human love, shows that very often suffering and joy do actually go together in the context of a love of people or of a person. The, a true love often brings suffering and joy at the same time. The holy souls in purgatory are full of joy, full of joy, because they know they've made it. They're, they're just about to be home. And yet there's a suffering there because they're not quite there. The, the final union with our Lord is somehow delayed, and it's also, they're aware, through their own fault. And, and that brings a suffering. But not a suffering of despair or of, of guilt-ridden sort of misery, but rather, uh, I suppose, a great longing for God. St. Robert Bellarmine has a very complete treatise on purgatory. Uh, he wrote it at the time of the Catholic Counter-Reformation when purgatory had been denied by the Lutherans. And he gave a whole series of classes in the university in Rome where he was teaching on why purgatory exists and the existence of purgatory. And it's a very complete treatise. In fact, it's really the notes he used in his lectures. And uh, he uses a nice uh, image for the holy souls. He says they're like people who are going into a city uh, and it's a walled city like many of the cities were at his, in his time I guess. And they're people who've arrived at the city but they can't they're not in through the gate yet. But they will get in in the morning. They're hanging around the gate. They've made the journey. They're nearly there but they're not quite there yet. So the holy souls in purgatory like our communion with them is in no way interrupted but rather is strengthened through the exchange of spiritual goods. This is a wonderful thing, Lord. It brings us great consolation, great joy. We're not alone. We're not alone. We're surrounded by our brothers and sisters, also those in purgatory, and, and we try and surround them, especially with our love. St. Josemaria, in his um, references to the holy souls in purgatory, he is striking um, in the sense that he talks about friendship with the holy souls. That's kind of the leitmotif of his relationship with them. It's, it's one of friendship. He, he's not the only saint, actually, to talk about friendship with the Holy Souls because St. Margaret Mary Alcoque, who was the great um, visionary of the Sacred Heart in 17th century France, she, she also spoke about the Holy Souls as her friends. In the way St. Josemaria writes, the Holy Souls in Purgatory out of charity, out of justice, and out of inexcusable selfishness, they have such power with God, be very much aware of them in your sacrifices and in your prayer. May you be able to say when you speak of them, my good friends, the souls in purgatory. Now that's point 571 in the way, and it comes from uh, an annotation in his spiritual diary from the 27th of December 1932. But in fact, around those years already, 
before that time, St. Josemaria had talked about the Holy Souls. The previous year, for example, he had written in his notes, the Holy Souls in Purgatory are my good friends. Or on another occasion, I invoke my good friends, the souls in Purgatory, so that they ask for all that Jesus' donkey needs. Of course, he referred to himself as Jesus' donkey. On the 22nd of December, um, 1934, he writes, Souls in Purgatory, my good friends, pray for me, a sinner. And it's interesting to note that years later, in 1967, he shared with Blessed Alvaro and um, and uh, Bishop Javier Echeverria, he shared with them in a confidential way, he said, At the beginning, I felt the company of the souls in purgatory very strongly. I felt them as if they were tugging me by the cassock, asking me to pray for them and to ask them for their intercession. Since then, due to the great services they have done for me, I like to say, to preach and to foster in souls, this reality. My good friends, the souls in purgatory. This reality, my good friends, the souls in purgatory. Well, we have all of that in the concept of friendship. Uh, going back to what uh, Monsignor Fernando Carith wrote about friendship. Mutual knowledge and communication. A form of love in two directions that seeks the true good of the other person. Of course, it is implicit in what uh, St. Josemaria says that, um, that he relies also on the prayers of the Holy Souls. He believes in their intercession for us. And it's interesting to, to note that that is the belief of very many Catholics and many Christians and of many saints. Although the Church has never declared very explicitly anything about the intercession of the Holy Souls. In fact, there was a thinking for a long time that, in fact, the Holy Souls don't pray for us. And this arose from an interpretation of some words of St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, because in one of his writings, St. Thomas wrote that the souls undergoing purification are in a state, quote, more to be prayed for than to be praying. More to be prayed for. And some authors took this as a straight negative response to the question. However, while it's clear that the Holy Souls have a very special need for the prayer of the heavenly church and of the earthly church, this doesn't necessarily mean that they cannot pray for the living. And like it would seem that they do pray because they belong to the family, to the friendship, the communion of the church. They are holy souls. They are in Christ. They have love for the whole church for you and for me as well um, and I, I guess they know what it's like to go through uh, the sufferings and the challenges of this life and it would make sense therefore that they they pray for us but indeed the church has not definitively taught on this question um, but nor has the church ever rebuked the practice of prayer for the, of praying asking for the holy souls intercession Interestingly, at Vatican II, there was a proposal to include an explicit reference to entrusting oneself to the prayers of the Holy Souls and their intercession for the living. But it was not actually uh, agreed upon in the end, and so it wasn't made part of uh, Lumen Gentium, because the Council didn't want to declare on this point. Um, so it, the Church may never declare on this point, but I suppose it seems like common Christian sense that we pray for them and they pray for us and the saints pray for all of us.
It's interesting, the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that, talking about the Holy Souls, it says, Our prayer for them, the Holy Souls, is capable not only of helping them, but also of making their intercession for us effective. So you could say the Catechism places our prayer for the dead to the fore, while at the same time affirming their intercession for us. Anyway, there is an element of mystery in all of this, and perhaps we don't need to have everything spelt out and defined. But we do know that we are united in a great communion of love in the Church. And that one way of looking at the Church is that it is really a great reality of friendship. A great reality of friendship. And the high point of that friendship, you might say the consummation of that friendship, is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. That's where heaven and earth um, and all aspects of the Church come together and are united in and around our Lord, in and around our Lord. It's at Mass that we meet the saints. Remember the Confitior, you know, we ask Blessed Mary, Ever-Virgin, and all the angels and saints to intercede for us. Um, or in the Holy Holy, we, we praise God with the angels and with the saints. Um, and also at the heart of the Mass, we pray. We pray for those who have died, who sleep in the peace of Christ. So in the Mass, in and around you, Jesus, on the altar, we're all united. The Mass is the great family reunion. It's the great place where all the friends ultimately meet. How beautiful is the Mass for so many reasons, but also because it's the ultimate family reunion. It's the ultimate gathering of friends. We ask Our Lady, who is at the heart of the communion of saints, to give us the joy and the consolation of knowing about this friendship of which we are part. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede.